Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney. And this week we have a guest, Bron Williams, who is all about dismantling unconscious bias and working with leaders in various sectors to raise awareness around bias, which leads to a greater capacity for broader thinking around diversity and difference. But before we meet Bron, I'd like to kick off with a classic track by En Vogue called Free Your Mind, because I'm slightly biased towards funky divas from the 90s.
Hi, Bron. Welcome to Feminist Fridays. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to just start by asking where you grew up in Sydney and what some of your early influences were. Okay, I grew up in the southern suburbs of Sydney, down in the Sutherland Shire. Mm-hmm. So I'm a Shire girl. They say you can never take the Shire out of anybody who's ever lived there. So um yeah, there's always that attachment, even though I now live in Melbourne and I've lived in Canberra, a few other places. Okay. Um, I think the strongest influence I had in my early life was um, the church. I, uh, My parents were foundation members of the Presbyterian Church in Carringbar and baptised at six weeks old, and that was my life. That was the um, community that I grew up in. So I grew up in a very conservative Christian tradition and it set the tone for much of my life. I see. So are you still Presbyterian? No. No, I've been involved in the Anglican Church and I was a Salvation Army minister for a while and now I probably sit outside the um, the institutional church and, uh, yeah, just faith has uh, changed shape over the years. As it does. As it does, yes. <laughs> I I went to the, in Sydney, Meth- Methodist Ladies College, but uh, there's not really much Methodist in me either still. I'm no. I'm more of an Anglican all-rounder. Ah, I'm a, an Anglican all-rounder. I like that. <laughs> so I understand that you volunteered to work on Nauru with the Salvation right. Army. Yes. But before we get into that, what type of career, you've just touched on it, were you involved in prior to volunteering? Well, I trained as a teacher. When I was eight years old, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I followed that path out of high school and spent uh, 25 years in the teaching profession, mostly on a casual basis, you know, raising children and things like that, but taught just about everything you can. So I did special ed, preschool. Uh, infants primary uh, and some high school and then also ended up doing some adult education and worked in aged care for a little bit too. So, um, yeah, had a very uh, broad range of understanding um, how people learn Mm. across across a lifetime. But then uh, midlife, um, as things do, you know, marriage broke up and I got involved with the Salvation Army and then I trained with them as a Salvation Army officer. So became a um, an ordained minister in the Salvation Army and it was while I was in that role that I went to Nauru. How fascinating. Well, <laughs> teaching is indeed a noble profession and I know that because my mother is a primary ah. school teacher. So I have a lot of admiration for teachers. And look, I think the best teachers, and you would know this from your own experience of schooling, there are some people who doesn't matter how much you train them, they're not very good teachers and others are just teachers because that's who they are. And I believe I fall into that cate- that second category because I was used to help um, my peers at high school. They'd come around for some maths tutoring and things like that. So, yeah, oh, I gosh. think I've always been a teacher. I could have used a friend like you. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that when you volunteered to work on Nauru, Um, with the Salvation Army, you started working with asylum seekers and that one day you realised 
that you had a churning in your stomach and that that churning was fear and it was fear of the asylum seekers because they were different to you. And you realised you'd been swimming in the water of racism and white privilege your whole life. Yeah. Were you shocked to yeah. realise that you were thinking in this way and oh, afraid of people to- who were different to you? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Because, um, you know, look, I grew up in a white middle-class conservative Bible Belt area of Sydney, mm. had not mixed much. And I'm a baby boomer, so, you know, the, the any multiculturalism were other white Europeans. So, you know, I think we had a couple of Chinese people at our church and at our school and that was about about it. So I really was not exposed to people other than uh, white European. And, uh, but I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't have said I was racist. I wouldn't have said I had a racist bone in my body because, you know, my parents brought us up to treat people fairly and equally. But it was actually on the very first day that I was on Nauru and we um, had to go down into the camp to see where we were going to be working. And that's when I had that um, experience of that churning in my stomach. And it took me a few days to figure out what was my body telling me. And then I had to think about, well, what is this fear telling me and why? And that's how I figured out that I actually did have this latent racism purely from the way I'd been brought up and the fact that I didn't know anything really mm. about about other cultures. And the whole white privilege thing came from um, just observing how the white expats in the various teams on Nauru would treat the Nauruans. Hmm. And, you know, I, I saw it in myself too, this sense of superiority. You know, look, we were first world country. Nauru was a little tiny uh, developing nation. Uh, you know, we're university educated. Most of the people in Nauru don't have more than a high school education. So there was this sort of innate sense of superiority. And I asked um, one of the leaders of um, the Salvation Army Nauru and Tina about this one day, and she just said, oh, look, we know that about you guys and we just accept it, which was a bit like a body blow that it was so obvious to the Nauruans how we were treating them, but we couldn't see it. Yeah, so um, those two things were Mm. the start of me looking at, well, what's going on beneath the surface of Bron? Yeah. Well, you know, we have have something in common, which is that I did some volunteer aid work in Indonesia. in my mid twenties, and I, I, I did notice that there were aid workers who sort of operated in a bit of a bubble, and that some Indonesian people would treat us quite separately. and And I was given this whole house and the sort of maid, and I just I, I felt very very odd being treated in that way and I sort yeah. of you know was like no no you don't need to clean up after me I don't need this I just want to learn about you and your way of life um but I I have witnessed what what you've witnessed I think in yeah. or a similar yeah. thing mm. and it's very unconscious I can remember um uh, one woman who came over for a while and she'd look and comment on the the houses of the Nauruans and say, oh, they need to paint them, they need to do this and that. And and I thought, don't come here with your white Western uh, 
ideas about what a nice house is like. But for goodness sake, it's a little tiny island. All the houses are near the coast mm. where, the, you know, you'd paint it today and in a year's time it'll be faded because it's exposed to all the elements. Thinking that's not important to the people who lived there. But she was judging them on what the houses looked like. I thought that's a bit silly. Yes, we don't like judging here at Feminist Fridays. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> so what what I wanted to know is did you leave Nauru or did you so I know that you took on the role, full time role of religious liaison officer. Yep. Did you leave Nauru or did you move into that role whilst you were there still? I uh, I that was I'd been to Nauru twice. Okay. And on the second time, I asked the Salvation Army for a permanent appointment to Nauru because I, that, I felt that was where I needed to be. Mm. And it's like so many of those sorts of situations, um, and to quote Charles Dickens, it was the best of times and the worst of times. I actually <laughs> felt the, uh, the most alive I have ever felt in my entire life while I was working there. I mm. felt like I was really a Salvation Army officer, I was doing frontline work with people who were in need, and I just loved it. And yet the other part of me saw the refugee camps that we were running and the conditions in which the Australian government was keeping people and the attitudes <laughs> towards them. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it was terrible. And I knew that, you know, we as Australians and as our government had contributed to the trauma of these people and they didn't deserve that. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a, for me, it was always a conflicted time, but I've never regretted going there. Um, it was, yeah, probably the best thing I've done in my life. Mm, no, I can relate to that completely. Um, and you've mentioned in, you know, in our correspondence that when you were working in this role as religious liaison officer, you were working in a multi-faith, multi-race team, and that was where you learned to see difference as an asset rather than a threat. Amen yeah. to that. I know. I know. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. And, look, you know, I was a Christian minister mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of the most godly people I met were tall, dark, dark African Muslim men. Mm. I was blown away by their faith and, you know, the way they carried themselves. And, you know, we had Muslims, Christians, atheists, Buddhists, Hindus um, on our team. And it was really interesting because I had less pushback. I had no pushback really from people who held a faith other than Christian. I had more pushback from white Australians who had no time for any sort of faith. (laughs) at all um, because I've realised that people of faith understand people of faith because they have this idea of transcendence, something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there was no um, no sense whatsoever uh, that there was a competition or that anybody was thinking one person's faith was better than others. And one of the greatest joys was uh, just before I left, I had been working very hard um four months after the camps had had to be reorganized after a fire went through through there in 2013 mm-hmm. to get prayer rooms 
up and running okay. and they had them before the fire and it was so hard to get them up and running afterwards. And eventually um, they got them up and running. Um, we'd had some quite um, – We'd had some interference from the Department of Immigration or one Department of Immigration official who put every hurdle in my way that she could possibly think of, but then had to back down when it became clear that this was actually part of our contract was to provide these. And on my very last day, I left the leader of the Muslims in the family camp and the leader of the Christians in the family camp talking together about how they were going to share the prayer room that had been allocated to them. And I thought, my work's done. That's beautiful. Mm. So as a human rights advocate, I feel very passionately about Australia's Pacific solution. Mm -hmm. And I think it is deeply, deeply concerning, to put it politely. Were the asylum seekers you were working with happy with their conditions and What's your opinion of the Pacific Solution? Uh, short answer is no, they were not happy. Mm. Now, my understanding is uh, that the original group who went to Nauru, um, I think it was about August, September 2012, they had already um, arrived on Christmas Island and had been on Christmas Island. So they were in, in Australia. They were put on a plane to go to Nauru, but they were not told until they were in the air where they were being taken. Mm. So first of all, there's deception. Second, there was, the well, the original camp were Green Army tents and um, yeah. then, then they moved to just sort of those big white marquees pretty much um, after the fire. One of the, for me, the most telling moments was when um, I think probably every week, every fortnight, we used to have a, um, a meeting where the various service providers, so, you know, the Salvation Army, uh, Transfield, who was um, providing security and the food services, and then, of course, the Department of Immigration, we would, um, you know, sort of have a panel telling the asylum seekers, what we were doing. And one man, um, and I will never forget him because I did actually meet him again here in Australia, um, he stood up and he said, when are we going to get off this island? When is our refugee status going to be determined? And the Department of Immigration official who was sitting next to me looked at him and said, that is not our responsibility. That is the responsibility of the Nauruan government. Well, I just sat there, hung my head. I felt ashamed to be an Australian mm-hmm. because that was how Australia was dealing with this. They were funding these camps, but mm-hmm. the agreement was that the Nauruan government would be the one who would determine refugee status. And so, you know, we could effectively wash our hands of these people, and yet it was our responsibility that they were there. We put them there. Mm. I can imagine that. I mean, to me, that's just completely unacceptable. It's yeah. persecution by policy. It's absolutely. And just the uncertainty that asylum seekers face is just, 
Yeah. And it's ongoing because some of the people that I met, <clears throat> uh, well, all the men who were there who were in that first group, they arrived in 2012 and then mid-2013 um, a new group was coming in. But the policy had actually changed. We'd had a change of government. And so they actually took off the island all the men who had arrived in 2012 and sent them to Australia mm-hmm. because, of course, allow two different groups who were there under two different policies to mingle. Mm-hmm. So all of those men in the, in the original group, um, they were transferred to Australia and I have been fortunate enough to meet a number of them um, here in Melbourne particularly mm-hmm. and some in Sydney and that um, has been of great joy. But I know of others who have only just been released from uh, detention in Darwin seven years later. So, you know, it's just, it's abysmal. It is. Let's talk about what you did next. So I understand that you then used the insight that you gained around your own bias to -hmm. make bias conscious in the corporate environment. And you work with leaders in various sectors to raise awareness around unconscious bias. Yes. So how do you do that? And what kind of bias do you find that you uncover? Are leaders shocked or surprised to learn about their unconscious biases? I didn't immediately um, step into this role. It was a few years later mm-hmm. that I left the Nation Army because I wanted to pursue um, as much as the Salvation Army's agenda is a good one, I wanted to do something that was completely passionate for me. And um, so I began this journey and I started to look at white privilege and unconscious bias. And that's where the whole thing about water comes from because I found this um, saying, it's an old Chinese saying that says, a fish is the last one to know what water is. Mm. And it's, so that's that idea that... Um, Our biases are there, but we're totally unaware of them. And so just working and, you know, I've had um, a great coach and mentor who's helped me shape my business. And, you know, we all need those people who are going to help us bring out the best in ourselves so that we can then give back. And um, so now I either, you know, do a number of different things. I run workshops. I do give um, a a town hall presentation or a boardroom roundtable where I talk about what bias is, how it forms. I share my Nauru story so that people can see that, for me, this is not an academic exercise. This is based on real-life personal experience. And my goal, like my tagline, is making bias conscious because I want people to understand that bias is part of being human. Mm. It's part of human condition. It's part of the way that we think. And every human being on the planet is biased. And if we can take that negativity away from it um, and that sense of guilt, maybe even shame, mm-hmm. then we can actually address it and see what is going on beneath the surface. Because I describe bias as an iceberg. And above the surface are the things that we see, particularly in the workplace, but in other areas as well, things like racism and ageism, Mm. uh, gender disparity, sexism, uh, ability discrimination, even things around, you know, weight and height. 
So what we see all those things and we often will run, you know, we have diversity and inclusion programs and we run bullying and harassment training, but nothing really changes. And it's because we actually haven't looked that little bit deeper to what's, you know, that 90% that's of the iceberg that's sitting there under the water, just continuing to feed these behaviours and it's our biases. So I um, work with people to just build awareness of that bias exists and what it looks like and how it forms. And by sharing my own story about, you know, my bias around racism wasn't something that I wanted and it wasn't something that I asked for, mm. but it's it's there just from the way I was raised. And so if we can help people see that that's the, how things happen in life, then we don't have to be ashamed about it, but we can address it mm. rather than just like it's important to address the behaviours, but it's really important to talk more about well, why are we doing these things? Because if we can understand the why, we're, more, we're much easier to change. You've talked about the iceberg. What do you think are some of those underlying causes of people's unconscious biases that, you know, below the tip of the iceberg? I can imagine that they may be a mixture of things like societal, political, and also related to people's upbringing. Would I be right? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yes. Most of our biases form when we're, in, when we're children, mm-hmm. from input from our family, um, our culture, like the subculture, like for me that was the Christian subculture, you know, sporting groups, certainly the media and politics um, shape how we uh, see the world. And most of those, the way that we see the world, like um, psychologists say that, you know, most of our real outlooks on life are shaped by the the age of seven. Mm. And we don't have the cognitive ability at seven or before that to um, make any choice around what we're learning, but we're absorbing all of these things. And it's only when we grow into adulthood when we've got the cognitive ability to reflect on our behaviours, which is actually a choice. We get the choice as to whether we do this or not. Um, but it's then in adulthood that we can decide, well, do, do I follow that sense, that belief system? Um, I, you know, I don't, I always seem to, you know, respond in this particular way to this particular person. Why is that? Why do I do that? and, you know, figure out what's going on. I'm also curious to understand, because this is Feminist Fridays, how feminism has been a part of your journey. And just to be clear, I'm an intersectional feminist. So I believe feminism is about equality for all, not just women's rights. I love that because I would never have said I was a feminist until I read Jane Caro's book last year, Accidental Feminists. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Jane Caro's um, pretty much in my age group too. So she spoke about a lot of things that as I'm reading her book, I'm going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's me, that's me. So I think that, you know, like I was a teenager in the 70s and so there was a lot of change happening there, but I was in this conservative Christian tradition, which was very traditional. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I grew up with very traditional male, female, roles um you know gender roles and that played itself out 
extra lot um, in my marriage. But I think because I'm a thinking person and I read a lot uh, and I think a lot, um, I, I think I was questioning so many things um, from my childhood upbringing, even not, even not consciously, just they would, you know, thoughts would come in and out of your mind and I'd question things. So was, I think I've really always been someone who is passionate about uh, equity and justice. Mm-hmm. And something I've realised as I've um, moved more and more into the unconscious bias space that I am passionate about addressing inequity and injustice in the world. And, you know, that's obviously why I became part of the Salvation Army, why I went to Nauru and worked with asylum seekers, mm. because that, that's part of who I am. And I think when you want to see justice for all people, it's not about one particular gender no. or uh, one particular group of people. It's about all people being able to live life to their fullest potential if that's what they choose to do because we do get choices but not having things, any impediments in the way of that that are put in place because of structures and policies or any other systems. So it's about dealing with those things that I see is really important. Mm. Brian, I think I could talk to you for forever because there's so many fascinating, we're both thinkers. And I think I really like the fact that you are open to challenging yourself and challenging other people, and but without judgment. Um, I could probably talk to you for for ages, but I do need to wrap up. So finally, where can my listeners find you, follow you, and support the amazing work that you're doing? So feel free to plug your website, social media. Um, and just where people can find you. Sure. I'm, um, my website is bronwilliams.com. So nice and simple. Oh, and is that a cat I hear? It is, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's just come in her little door. Sorry, I just and... interrupted you, but I could hear a cat. <laughs> That's all right. No, um, my website is bronwilliams.com. So mm-hmm. nice and simple. Please come and stalk me on LinkedIn. That's where I play. Um, I love the business platform. Again, you can engage in intelligent conversation. Um, True. And so I love that. So look up Bron Williams there. And so they're the two best ways to to find me. Excellent. Well, I certainly will. I'll come and play with you on LinkedIn. Excellent. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Bron. It's been really fascinating hearing your story and Thank you for your openness and your honesty. It's been a pleasure and it has been delightful to be able to talk more deeply about my Nauru experience because I don't often get the opportunity to do that. Well, that has been another fierce episode of Feminist Fridays for this week. But before you tune out, I'd like to leave you with a classic track, another classic by Eve featuring Gwen Stefani called Let Me Blow Your Mind because here at Feminist Fridays, Bron has blown our minds in a good way. Yo, drop your glasses, shake your ass. 
asses Face screwed up like you having hot flashes Which one? Pick one, this one classic Red from blonde, yeah, bitch, I'm drastic Why this? Why that? Lip stop basking Listen to me, baby, relax and start passing Expressway, head back, weaving through the traffic This one strong, should be labeled as a hazard Some of y'all niggas hot, psych, I'm gassing Clowns, I spot them and I can't stop laughing Easy come, easy go, Evie gonna be lasting Jealousy, let it go, results could be tragic Some of y'all ain't writing well, too concerned with fashion None of you ain't Giselle, can't walk and imagine A lot of y'all Hollywood drama, cast it Cut bitch, camera off, real shit, blast it Mistake, nigga, it was planned on me. I had to give you up. It's only 